0: and we are here with our weekly COVID-19 update with Dr. Dean and Dr. Ellen. I am sitting looking out the window, and I just have to say it's one of the most beautiful days we've had in Sacramento where we're recording, and I'm feeling lucky in some ways to have this gorgeous weather. Don't you agree?
1: Yeah, except that you can't really go outside in a group, can you?
0: No, but you can go outside by yourself and with your immediate family. You
1: can. And
0: it's absolutely gorgeous. So I'm just remaining thankful for this weather. So Dr. Dean, give us the biggest updates on COVID-19 from this week.
1: I think one of the most interesting things in the news is the talk about reopening things and, and getting back to normal and getting back to work and the concerns that if we do that in the wrong way, that we're going to have another wave of infections.
0: Right. So I think this goes in nicely to, we record this in California. So Governor Newsom yesterday, I believe, or Monday, put out six key things that he wants to see happen before he will lift the stay-at-home mandate. And I think that many states in the U.S. will follow something kind of similar. And so let's talk a little bit about those things that he wants to see. So he wants to be able to monitor and track potential cases.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: That goes to testing, right? He wants to prevent infection in those high-risk groups, make sure hospitals can handle surges, develop therapeutics to meet this demand, and then ensure schools, businesses, childcare facilities can support social distancing, and then have a plan in place if we need to reinstitute staying home. Those are a lot of things. So you really feel like we're getting close to that?
1: Well, I think we need to think about those things. We need to approach this in a very organized manner and let the public health, the data, and the science drive these decisions. Um, And I think it's also a positive sign that instead of just the states individually making these decisions, that you'll see several states in the West and in the Northeast banding together, realizing that we don't live in isolation, that people do travel between the states, and so that we really need to have a coordinated, um, coordinated response um, depending on local circumstances.
0: Yeah, I see. I, I got you. But there's some people like in the media, some people are saying 2022. But that seems insane. So you don't think that's correct, do you?
1: Well, what that is, is it's based on the percent of the population that is infected. And if we really want to keep hospital capacity available for potential surges, then we need to have a certain level of the population either immune or the continued social isolation. So one of the theories is that if we reinstituted and relaxed, if we had a series of waves of um, the social distancing, um, that it might be until 2022 till we had enough of the population immune so that we wouldn't get widespread transmission. And, of course, that's in the absence of any kind of prophylactic antiviral therapy or the development of a vaccine because we don't know when those are coming.
0: Okay, so we are making some strides to monitor and do contact tracing and all of those types of things. So that's a benefit, but it doesn't sound like we have any clear endpoint still.
1: Still no clear endpoint, but we do have increasing testing availability, and then we're going to have the serologic tests, the blood antibody tests, hopefully available um, soon.
0: Yeah, that's great. So I want to go kind of quickly because there's been a few studies that came out that I think are important. We've talked before about the R-naught, which is a indicator about how transmissible something is. And I know that you had mentioned that this R-naught seems to have changed from when we first recorded to what we're knowing about COVID-19 now.
1: Right. So the early days, what we had is the R-naught was uh, suggested to be somewhere around two or three-ish, meaning that every person that was infected in a naive population, which we basically are, um, we would get two or three other people infected. Of course, that's going to lead to continued transmission. So those were the early ones. This is the are not the basic reproductive number. But you can't really calculate that while an epidemic is ongoing. It's much more accurate to do this in retrospect. And so some researchers from Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico had a, a really excellent publication that just came out. And They have a more sophisticated mathematical modeling approach, and they suggest that in Wuhan, where this started, that the r naught is closer to 6. And so that just makes a lot more sense when we look at the explosive nature of this epidemic. We knew it should be higher, and it didn't make sense, yeah, to to be like 2 or 3.
0: Interesting. So lots of new research coming out. One study that's made some news was saying that maybe the virus would travel longer than the six feet that we've been using and saying that maybe it has the potential to travel up to 13 feet.
1: Yeah, so this is an interesting study, and I think um, it's been misrepresented in the media. It's a very small study, and they did air sampling. And the way they did the air sampling is they had these machines that would sample air 300 liters per minute. Now, you realize the average adult human breath uh, breathing is about 5 to 8 liters per minute. Um, So this is like 30 times the volume of air, and um, they did this sampling in ICUs and wards that were taking care of infected patients. So this is not like in real life. Um, This is nothing that you would encounter in public or at the grocery store or anywhere else. So I think the danger has been overstated with those studies.
0: So the lines of six feet of distancing at the grocery stores and everything is still appropriate and more studies to come, but we don't need to freak out and expand to 13 feet at this point.
1: Right. Uh, You know, this is all probability. It's not like the virus travels three or six feet and then automatically it just like drops to the ground, right? This is all a matter of probability and concentration and all that. And sure, sometimes the virus could travel more than six feet, but these are reasonable recommendations to to say a, a minimum of six feet distance.
0: I gotcha. So you talked a little bit about the antibody test that's coming out and increased testing. Have we seen any recent changes to the testing algorithm where before we were like, no, only go if you're like really sick or you're in a high risk group? Are they loosening up on those? Are we saying, hey, we want to know even if your kid just has a little fever but is doing fine? Any changes to that?
1: You know, it just depends where you are and what the testing availability is. So for some areas that might have a high volume of tests available, they will test people who have mild symptoms. And in other areas, they're going to restrict that to try to um, test the most ill patients. So it really just depends on local availability.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. I also heard that the NIH is planning to enroll 10,000 adults to do antibody testing on, And I was thinking that this would be really interesting to do a study like this in children because we think that a lot of them are asymptomatic or mild carriers. Any plans to do this that you've heard of or you see coming down the pipeline?
1: Yeah, some universities have developed their own antibody tests, and they have plans to do these academic studies to see what percent of the population has already been infected. But these are tricky studies to do. They're very good to do um, on the large scale where you aggregate the data. They're a little bit more difficult to um, interpret on an individual basis because if only, you know, four or five percent of the population, say, has been infected, you can get these testing results that are inaccurate, the false positives and false negatives can result. So, the individual tests may not be accurate, but probably the aggregate data is good.
0: So, one really disturbing thing that I've seen come up in the news over the last few weeks is the racial disparities that are coming out during this pandemic. So, cities like New York and Chicago are reporting higher death rates among minorities from COVID-19. And I know that the Surgeon General said that it seems like it's just because people have color are maybe more likely to live in a densely packed area or multi-generational housing. But is there anything that you've seen that can be done to help mitigate the spread in this community? Are there any other factors that's causing them to get more infected than other groups?
1: Yeah, so we should just be clear about that. That This is not that certain races or ethnicities have any kind of genetic makeup that are different that make them more susceptible to infection or to severe disease. This really just reflects a societal issue that there are um, socioeconomic and healthcare disparities in general. And so overall living conditions are impacted where people who don't have as much money or economic prospects are um, more crowded together, which leads to increased transmission. We We know that um, there are risk factors for health uh, among those who might have chronic diseases among minorities, and they may not get care for these chronic diseases like hypertension, um, obesity, or diabetes. So these underlying structural societal issues really need to be addressed to um, take care of this.
0: Right. So as opposed to this being something that affects minorities more, it's more just unmasking the, the disparities that we already have within a country. And we need to work on that once this is all over. So we have three specific listener questions that were submitted this week. The first, um, talking again about masks. So I know we've talked some about this, saying that um, while It's sort of up to you, or depending on your jurisdiction where you live, if you are required to wear masks to go out of the house. It is not recommended that kids under two wear masks. So why is this the age cutoff?
1: Yeah. So the first thing to know about the wearing of the masks is it's not protecting you. It's protecting those around you. So the mask might capture any kind of droplet that you have, even if you're asymptomatic, so that you're not transmitting to others. So, so it's a good public health measure in terms of like being part of the collective society and decreasing potential transmission. Um, for children less than two, this, the masks themselves can be a choking hazard. And also they may have difficulty breathing with the mask on. So if they do have difficulty breathing, they need to be able to take the mask off. And children less than two years of age may not reliably be able to remove the face masks. And if that can't happen, then they could, they could suffocate. They could die.
0: Yeah, so that's a good reason that anyone that is not developmentally mature enough to remove the mask themselves should not be wearing one. Right. It's sort of like when you're on a plane and you put on your oxygen, you your oxygen before the child's.
1: Right. Right. Maybe. Right. (laughs) Hopefully.
0: Um, Another question was talking about possible transmission from pets. Um, You know that I am a cat lover and have two cats. So I was a little concerned to hear that they may be carriers. What are your thoughts? What does the data show about this?
1: Well, you know, being a dog person myself, like normally I would say just get rid of the cats, but um, I won't, <laughs> I won't do that. <laughs> okay. So this is, um, many people saw on the news about Nadia, the tiger at the Bronx Zoo who tested positive for uh, COVID-19. And yeah. there's been other reports of cats testing positive. Um, I've seen them from Belgium and from Hong Kong. I'm not sure where else. But there is no scientific evidence that cats or other pets transmit to humans. So I'm not worried about that. (laughs) Hallelujah. Right.
0: Okay. I'm happy about that. Um, So we all know about the run on toilet paper and cleaning supplies. And now it's on to Clorex wipes, you know, any cleaning supplies. So, So one listener is asking what are some suggestions for alternative cleaning? I know here I've been using, like, old rags and just, like, cleaning solution, like, and we don't have Clorox wipes, but that's been working fine. What have you been doing?
1: Um, we've got the wipes. <laughs> because, <laughs> of because course I, you
0: do, because you've been stockpiling them for this very moment.
1: Because I, I they were on sale at a big, big box store, so we got a, a lot of them, and then we never used them till now. <laughs> <laughs> so, the, so they've just been sitting around until now.
0: Oh, spoken like a infectious disease doctor but for those of us who were not preparing for this moment their whole life Mm -hmm. what do we do
1: so soap and water works very well so that of course that depends on the item that you're washing and then the other thing that you can use is a dilute bleach solution if of course you have bleach because that's in short supply too right
0: i was able to get some this morning actually
1: Oh, that's great. So bleach works really well. So you take a third a cup bleach and you put that diluted in a gallon of of water, and then you can use that to um, wipe off surfaces. And that works very well. You have to let it sit on the surfaces for up to 10 minutes and then wipe it off. uh, But it does work very well.
0: Okay, perfect. We're really excited to have Dr. Ellen back with us today. Hi, Dr. Ellen. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Of course. Last week, we had some awesome instruction on distance learning and managing parenting while working from home. Um, But today, we thought it would be really important to talk about how to talk to kids about coronavirus.
1: Yeah, it's really important. So what are some of the most common questions that you're hearing from kids?
2: Yeah. So they're going to be different by a different age group, obviously. So um younger children are often most curious about why they can't play with other children or see their other family members right now and why they can't go to daycare or preschool um or do other things that they're used to um right now in this moment. I know... In our house, we've been talking a lot um, with my two-year-old about why we can't go to the playground. She continues to have a lot of questions about that. And then kids often also ask about why people are wearing masks, especially, um, as we've talked about, now that mask wearing is much more common in public. Um, And then older kids may have, you know, pretty sophisticated questions about the pandemic and may be more able to express specific fears that they have about the virus. Like worries that they or someone they care about could get sick.
1: So, how do you address these questions? How? What, what kind of answers do you give, and what sort of resources are out there for parents to help them come up with answers for their children?
2: There's a lot of resources out there. First of all, I would say just let children know that you're available and open to talk about the pandemic whenever they are ready. Um, I think the most powerful thing you can do is listen to their concerns and validate their thoughts and their fears because we all have them. Um, And then answer honestly. Um, So for younger kids, keep answers simple but true. So for example, If your child is asking about playing with other children, um, you can say, you know, we have to take a break from playing with other kids right now so that everyone can stay healthy. And talking about mask wearing, you could say something like a lot of people are wearing masks right now to keep everyone healthy. And then I think it's always nice to, Take a tip from Mr. Rogers and talk about all the helpers that are working to care for the people um, around you, around your children, and to control the pandemic.
0: Yeah, that's always nice to kind of alleviate some of the stress by saying, look at all of these people who are working to
2: help you and get
0: this over with.
2: Absolutely. And I think specifically if kids are concerned about themselves getting sick or other family members or people they care about getting sick, again, answer honestly. And you can say everyone gets sick sometimes. If you get sick, if, you know, um, grandma gets sick, um, we're going to help each other until they get better. And then I'm going to call your doctor, a grandma's doctor, to help them get better too.
0: Are there any like websites or resources that parents can go to to look through a list of this so that they have them on hand should, should something tricky come up?
2: Absolutely. Um, so the organization Zero to Three, they have a really nice handout on how to answer specific questions that younger children might ask about the pandemic. And then for older kids, NPR actually produced a really cool comic that answers a lot of questions about what COVID-19 is and what kids can do to protect themselves and others and helps them kind of understand their place in all this um,
0: I love a good comic.
1: Yeah, comics are great. Yeah.
0: Those will be posted on our website. Um, So last week, we had a question about a child with anxiety. And I know that a lot of kids and adults are struggling with anxiety during this. But specifically in our kids, we can see them acting out in different ways, as opposed to like being able to talk about it with a partner or a loved one. They're going to be acting out throwing tantrums, fighting with their siblings. So what tips do you have for parents to deal with this family stress in a productive way?
2: So like you said, Lena, stress and anxiety is high with everyone right now. I mean, I can even tell that my two-year-old is stressed and just wants to go back to how things normally were um, and do the things that she normally was able to do. Again, I think the first step here is to recognize how stress reactions kind of manifest in kids, um, because it looks different. So in preschool kids, this might be um, an increase in temper tantrums, a change in appetite, um, some bad dreams that they're having. School-aged kids, on the other hand, might be more forgetful, might be competing for parents' attention. They can also be more withdrawn. And then older uh, kids and adolescents might be more agitated or resistant to doing their online schoolwork. They can even sometimes get physical symptoms. And we can see this in younger kids too, like headache or stomach ache. So I think if you're recognizing some of these reactions, again, talking to kids about their fears, letting them know that you're available to talk about what's going on. And then kids, like a lot of us, feel like they can't control anything right now. So I think trying to give them choices when you can can be really, really helpful. So helping them choose between two activities or what they want to help make for dinner can be great. And again, a routine, like we talked about last week, is really helpful, but trying to also be flexible and patient um, when your child doesn't want to participate, maybe because they're anxious or trying to deal with some of these emotions. And then I think keeping in touch with family and friends as much as you can via phone or video chat is really important for everyone. And then recognizing and managing your own stress as a caregiver is really, really important. Kids learn how to deal with stress and anxiety by looking to the adults around them. Um, So I think it's really important to also understand how you're dealing with your own stress.
1: So parents as role models. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'd also like to mention um, our colleagues' great podcast, EM Pulse, and that's doctors Julia Magana and Sarah uh, Um They're uh, pediatric emergency medicine doctors at the UC Davis Department of Emergency Medicine. And they did a recent episode, Meditation in a Pandemic, that had a really nice guided meditation by Dr. Wendy Lau. And we'll have a link uh, on our website. It's aimed at healthcare providers, but parents might want to try this exercise also.
0: So, so helpful. This was a great episode and I would definitely recommend trying it. Um, and we would love to hear how you, how you thought it went and other things that you guys are doing at home to stay mindful and to reduce anxiety. I'm glad that you brought up stress because we are seeing it a lot in our parents in clinic. And we have talked about practicing positive parenting when we've done our episode on discipline and a few other episodes. And with all of this stress and financial hardships, being out of work, being at home, a lot of pediatricians are concerned that child abuse might increase under the current situation. So I do want to provide parents with some resources when they're just feeling like they're at their wit's end or that they can't take anymore. Anything that you can tell our parents about this.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, positive parenting, it's all about recognizing positive behaviors and um giving attention where you see those. And, you know, this can be particularly hard right now when frustrations are high and families are stressed and f- kind of forced into these close quarters. I think things you can always can keep in mind about positive parenting are that when you're disciplining, you can use timeouts. Um, you can try to redirect bad behavior as much as possible. Praise good behavior when you see it and successes that your kids have around the house. And if they're helping out with things, you know, let them know that you appreciate that and that they're doing a really great job. And then also knowing when not to respond um, when kids are acting out as also. Um, and then as always, like avoiding any physical punishment with your children. Um, I think if you are feeling at the end of your rope, and this isn't possible with all families, but trying to take turns watching kids uh, with another adult can be really, really helpful in kind of just letting the adults in the house take a break when they need it. And then always feeling free to walk away for a few minutes if you need a break um, as long as your children are safe um, and just giving yourself a few minutes to compose yourself, take a few deep breaths and let some of that frustration kind of of dissipate.
0: Yes, totally. How about um, like hotlines or numbers? I know here we have a crisis nursery in Sacramento that you can always drop kids off if You are at the end of your rope um, or other things like that 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 might be available.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if you feel like you're going to lash out, you know, verbally or physically at your family or your kids, um, some things you can first kind of ask yourself is, Number one, does this problem represent an immediate danger to my child? Number two, how will I feel about this tomorrow? And number three, is this situation permanent? And I think for the vast majority of reasons that a child's acting out or that you are feeling very stressed, um, the answer to these questions is no. And that can help reduce your panic and prevent kind of lashing out at at a child. So I think those are really three important questions to kind of have in your back pocket. And then if you feel like you are going to um, lash out at your family, reach out for help. Um, Call a friend, a relative, your doctor's office, your mental health provider. Um, And then there's actually a national uh, helpline that you can contact that will um, pair you with a trained counselor for immediate uh, help. And this is the Disaster Distress Helpline. It's put on by the US Department of Health and Human Services. Um, and I can say the number out loud and then we can link to it again in the, in the episode. So it's 1 800 985 5990. You can also text talk with US to 66746. And this service is always open uh, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It's free. They have multilingual um, providers and it's confidential as well. So I think that's a really important number for caregivers to have.
0: Yeah, for everyone to have on hand, for sure. Thank you for sharing that with us.
2: Yeah,
1: and if parents want more um, tips on discipline, um, we did a podcast on that a while ago um, so they can listen to our Discipline Do's and Don'ts podcast.
0: I think that with all of this, we've had a lot of tips to kind of help Mitigate stress during this episode. I also wanted to mention that a lot of families may be dealing with food insecurity. Um, maybe like the free lunch was the something that they relied on for their kids when they were at school. And so every state should be dealing with this in their own way. Here in California, we there are still ways to get free lunch. Um, there's an app that you can download called. Ca California Meals for Kids, and it will put all of the local areas that are providing free lunch for families on that app. I know just within my neighborhood, there's like five different spots, and there's different hours that you can go. And luckily, here we've responded by increasing the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, CalFresh. Um, so all families for April and May will be getting more money um, for purchasing. But again, if, you're, if this is an issue for you, please reach out to us and we can provide you with more resources. So I think that that wraps up today's update. It was a long one, but there's a lot of stuff that's been coming down the pipeline and we just want to make sure that we're keeping all of our listeners up to date. And please, as always, continue to send us your questions and we will work to post them and reply during this, the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: Yeah, whatever questions you have, please send them to us, and we're happy to address them. And we're also happy to say that we don't know the answer if we don't know the answer.
0: Definitely. So we'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening.
1: That wraps up this episode of Kids Considered.
0: You can find more information on our website, kidsconsidered.ucdavis.edu.
1: Follow us on Twitter at Kids Considered.
0: And Instagram at Kids Considered.
1: If you have feedback on this show or topics you would like us to discuss in the future, we would love to hear from you.
0: Please call us. Our number is 916-915-3388.
1: Or email us at kidsconsidered at gmail.com.
0: Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you subscribe to your podcast.
1: Thank you for listening and we hope you will join us for our next podcast.
0: Kids Considered is sponsored by UC Davis Children's Hospital.